So what I want to talk about today is something which I hope addresses what it seems to me is the very good overall title of this um, uh, 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 conference, Stories, Spaces, and Societies. And so I want to look at personal correspondence during the Great War and the question of whether it was whether it's best considered as public or private. Now, the Great War separated people in Europe and beyond uh, on an unprecedented scale. Already, of course, industrialization and urbanization in the later 19th century not only drew rural people to the cities, but they also generated long-distance migration across frontiers and indeed over the oceans. And that already had led ordinary people to write letters. But then the war ruptured normal family life for tens of millions of men who were mobilized into the army and who were sent to fight far from home, often abroad. So the war, the Great War, confirmed separation as a mass experience for a large cross-section of the population. <coughs> now, personal separation as a result of the war took place in a world in which for a number of decades the written word and the mass-produced image had also been generalized. The press and other forms of media, we talked about some of them this morning, including the cinema, had helped create what one might think of as an increasingly large and dense public sphere, a sphere in which opinion was formed and exchanged. The state and established political forces had to find new ways by both persuasion and dissuasion of re-establishing their authority and legitimacy over an increasingly broad political and public opinion. Wartime separation also took place in a Europe in which literacy levels were rising, and of course this applies to North America and Australasia as well, were rising even if they were still uneven. Uh, literacy was virtually universal in the northwest of the continent, but declined as one moved south and east. It was a Europe, in other words, in which the habit of writing extended well beyond the elites. People wrote for many reasons, but the separation provoked by first mass migration in the later 19th century and then the Great War enlarged a private sphere in which the written word and especially correspondence, letters, expressed intimate feelings. Yet this expanded private sphere coexisted with the enlarged public sphere that I've just mentioned, and which offered the private sphere values, ideologies, models of behavior. And the private sphere, like the public sphere, also concerned the state. Hence, the mass phenomenon of personal correspondence during the Great War stood at the intersection of the private and the public. And it's this paradoxical nature of the phenomenon that I want to tease out with you uh, today. Were these letters public? Were they private? Were they both? I'll look first at how individual <coughs> letters and correspondence forged an intimacy by writing <coughs> between themselves to overcome separation. I'll then secondly go on to look at the place of some of these letters in the public sphere, because they made it into the public sphere. And finally, I'll talk about how such letters assumed a collective dimension as one expression of a wartime public opinion that the state was concerned both to monitor and to control.
But firstly, epistolary intimacy, the intimacy of the letters. Wartime correspondence, it seems to me, was <coughs> excuse me, far from being just a simple mechanical reflection of pre-existing feelings between those who wrote them, couples, families, and friends. For separation on the scale that it happened in the Great War was a novel experience. And one of the key roles of the letters, of letter writing as an activity, was to establish what I would call intimacy at a distance, and indeed precisely despite distance. It led the correspondents to construct a new relationship with each other. In writing, they said things and expressed things which they never would normally have expressed, wouldn't have needed to express, uh, up close and uh, uh, by verbal communication. The deep need for intimacy, especially when separation might at any moment bring about the death of the soldier, perhaps explains more than anything else why wartime letter writing was a mass phenomenon. Now, research over the last 20 years has insisted on this popular dimension of the letter writing, on the fact that the correspondents were ordinary people, uh, to use the phrase of Martin Lyons in his book, which I certainly recommend to those of you who don't know it, The Writing Culture of Ordinary People in Europe, 1860 to 1920. <coughs> um, uh, 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 it's, um, uh, it's, it, or in the case of the Italian school of Antonio Gibelli and Fabio Caffara in Genoa, with their Center for the Study of Proletarian Writing, uh, what they would call the, the, the letters of la gente comune, of the common people. Um, and so the emphasis, as I say, in the last 20 years has been on the letter writing of ordinary people in my ma mass migration and particularly uh, in the First World War, and therefore on the role of the Great War as a crucial turning point in the spread of letter writing as a habit. For the Great War not only removed millions of men from their homes, but it kept them for years in the relatively stable conditions of industrial siege warfare. We've already looked at that in terms of the ambulance organization of the front, the medical organization. It's true, so many aspects of the front and not just the Western Front. It was precisely the stasis, the stability, which allowed for a systematic organization, and that included post and letter writing. The invention of the modern postal service in the mid-19th century, railway networks that supplied the fronts with everything, including letters and parcels sent in both directions, and of course the practice of writing, which had been inculcated in however rudimentary a manner by the primary schools, which were now established in most European countries, all of this meant that the Great War was the first war in which the majority of soldiers were able to use the written word and especially the letter, as an integral part of their experience, as something indeed that helped structure their experience. And not surprisingly, I don't have any illustrations here, but not surprisingly, if you look, the wartime press, the war artists and so on, are full of images of men reading or writing letters. The importance to soldiers of their letters, of the correspondence, is a kind of universal theme. As I mentioned, literacy levels were lower in armies such as those of Italy, where literacy was 37% nationally, or of Russia. And we know next to nothing about writing practices in the Ottoman army. But even in the Italian and Russian cases, hundreds of thousands of letters were sent every week and, by, and were by no means written only by officers. 
Moreover, the illiterates had recourse to public scribes, or simply to comrades, who composed letters on their behalf. Letters that no doubt often used traditional formulae, but which didn't completely eliminate the words and the accent of the individual author. This was notably the case for the colonial soldiers and workers in the British and French armies, Indians, North and West Africans, Chinese, Indochinese, and others, who often came to the capitals of empire or to other colonies for the very first time. So historians have been right to emphasize letter writing as the domain of ordinary people, and hence of ordinary soldiers. Nonetheless, this focus raises certain questions regarding both the social production and also the extent of wartime correspondence. Firstly, if we emphasize ordinary people, this tends to suggest that they were separated from their opposite, the elites, by a barrier of social standing and cultural and political power that resulted in different modes of letter writing, that of ordinary people being rudimentary, <coughs> direct, that of the elites more self-consciously literary. Notables, bourgeois, and intellectuals, and the junior officers who came from these same groups were certainly aware of this social frontier and were often practicing a consciously literary form of letter writing. But it seems to me it proved to be a very porous barrier, and it was one that was crossed by many artisans, shopkeepers, white-collar workers, better-off peasants, and even industrial workers, people who in no way belonged to the world of the powerful, but who often knew how to read and write correctly, and who sometimes displayed a real culture of the written word. In other words, many ordinary people could express themselves very well by the written word. What we see, though this is doubtless truer of Britain, France, and Germany than of Russia or Italy, is perhaps less a social frontier in writing than a kind of sliding scale in the ability to write that went from the literary to the basic. And it was a scale that didn't correspond exactly with the social hierarchy. And indeed, it was a scale that was accentuated by the imperatives and the opportunities generated by wartime separation. And I came across the example in the military archives in Paris four weeks ago of 70 letter postcards of a guy, he's an ordinary soldier, he's writing home to his wife from, from Macedonia. He's never done this kind of thing before, but not only does he write on the military postcards which say you must not send any sensitive information, on the reverse side he draws, he's a brilliant draftsman, he draws and colors everything that he's seen. The retreat from the, the, retreat from the Bulgarian front, um, women in burqas that he's encountered in Salonika, and so on. My, my point is that war made people write and express themselves in ways that often, I think, surprised themselves. Secondly, because much of the research has been conducted in a national framework, we are far from having a comparative view of this wartime letter writing for all fronts. To be sure, there was also a gradation from northwest to southeast across Europe in terms of the volume of personal correspondence during the war. But quite apart from the fact that there was still quite a lot for the Italians or the Russians, the presence of British, French, and Italian troops on distant fronts, such as Gallipoli, Macedonia, and Palestine, let alone the expeditionary campaigns in Mesopotamia and East Africa, enables us in theory to compare the different registers of written experience through letters that obtained in the various armies. If we just take Gallipoli, 
how did the two fronts that confronted each other there, Allied and Ottoman, <coughs> describe shared conditions and a common range of experiences in letters? And the same question applies to Russians and Austro-Hungarians in Galicia in 1914-15 to 15, and to armies elsewhere. We have here the makings of a major comparative project. Finally, there's an imbalance owing to gender. Of course, it's not that women wrote less than men. By its very nature, the correspondence between soldiers and their families implied an exchange with mothers, wives, sisters, and girlfriends. But soldiers were rarely able to keep the letters they received because of conditions at the front, whereas the reverse was the case with letters from the front, which were often preserved at home, a talisman to the soldier's safe return. Moreover, the soldiers' letters had a public symbolic value, whereas women's letters had little or none, and I'll return to that point. Here, there's a major difference, therefore, in the epistolary trace left by men compared to women. <laughs> the written word that we find in the archives or that we discover in the family attic, and which has been published in recent years so abundantly, is above all that of the soldier, much more than it is of the female or home front correspondent. For all these caveats, we had a remarkable body of correspondence, depending on the country, that allows us to study how intimacy was constructed at a distance, an intimacy which, together with the close intimacy of the family, deprived of its menfolk, and the close intimacy of the soldier with his comrades at the front, constitutes one of the essential frameworks of the war experience. Constructed is, as I've said, the key word. For all the analysis undertaken of this war correspondence and the individual epistolary exchanges underlines how so much of the intimacy that was produced was consciously created. In other words, it's pointless to imagine that we'll somehow find in this correspondence between soldiers and uh, their families a kind of unmediated witness-eye view of the war, a kind of perspective above the fray, au-dessus de la mêlée. The correspondence was deeply functional, and to understand what's being written, we have to decode the strategies used, the relationships of which they formed a part, and the situations that they addressed. Clémentine Vidal-Naquet in France, in a splendid book, Couple dans la Grande Guerre, Couples in the Great War, has managed to find 70 or so sets of correspondence both ways on. Quite remarkable. And one of the things which she draws attention to is how what she calls an almost structural <laughs> banality made up of references to the trivia of life characterizes this correspondence. But, she argues, and I think rightly, this had a crucial purpose. For to refer to the most ordinary things, to one's health, the children, the family farm, this was to affirm life. More, it was to affirm the hope of life over and in spite of a war that threatened its very opposite, and in relation to which the letters themselves were a sign of survival. Nothing was feared more than a break in the correspondence, because who knows what that meant. And indeed, often the soldiers number the correspondence and insist that their correspondence do the same, so they'll know that the sequence is continuing. The letters thus became a way to manage time, and therefore to manage hope, hope of the next home leave, of the offensive that would end the war, and, would end, and therefore which would end the separation. Letters also allowed each party to measure the risk of death 
not directly, but by exchanging information on how many had already perished from the platoon, the company, the regiment, or the village, or the neighborhood. Everyone counted and recounted in writing. So the soldiers say, we lost three quarters. They don't know. We lost three quarters of the regiment, or something they did know. 30% um, of the company um, didn't survive the last attack. But from home, the wife might be writing saying, did you know that, that Guillaume or Fred uh, from a completely different regiment is actually wounded and has died? And so a kind of tally. This is mass death that people are fighting, of, uh, are, are encountering. And so a kind of tally is, is uh, operated through this personal correspondence. Soldiers also wrote, though with greater difficulty, of the possibility of their own demise, with greater difficulty because the whole point about the correspondence and the constructive intimacy was it was designed to avoid death, to negate death. But you couldn't ignore the fact that it might occur. And so sometimes they do address it directly. Quote, you will be you and me both, wrote the French ethnographer Robert Ertz to his wife Alice in 1915, evoking the case of his own disappearance, as would happen a few weeks later, and the need for his wife to raise their little baby on her own. You will be you and me both. Germain Cusac, a peasant from the Gers in southwestern France, addressed the same issue in a more fatalist manner when describing the nature of battle to his wife. Quote, Sometimes there are more than 50 dead bodies that haven't been identified, buried in a hole with a cross on top. But you mustn't let that upset you. We have to resign ourselves to everything, end of quote. In a coded way, he's alluding to the possibility that he'll end up as one of those bodies in a hole. In this way, soldiers wrote about the war, about combat, but they did so as part of a strategy of survival that sometimes meant describing the atrocious things they had seen and experienced so that they could make a tale of them, the ordering narrative that helped them overcome the extremity of the experience. Of course, they didn't say everything to their correspondents, but then we never say everything to everyone. And they didn't necessarily say the same things to their parents, their wives, their fiancés, or their friends. Everything depended on the situation they had experienced and the, relationship in, and the relationship in question. Thus, these situations and relationships both helped structure the soldier's experience. Intimacy as created by the personal letters was a means of surviving the war, but it was also constantly threatened with breakdown by the war for the soldiers and their correspondents alike. I come now to my second point, which is the place that these personal letters occupied in the public sphere. From the outset, in France and Germany at least, soldiers' letters were accorded a special value because they were taken to be kind of windows into the nation's soul. So, for example, the Bulletin des Armées de la République, the Bulletin of the Armies of the Republic, which was sent to every French military unit, proclaimed in late August 1914, and I quote, these are the scraps of paper that you feverishly scribble in the evenings after the hard march and the heavy fighting with a pen or pencil. These envelopes without stamps, because of course military mail was free, these pages written on the wing, where in a few words you tell your story, confident, simple, boyish, and heroic twice over by your bravery and by your typical French gaiety. These are the balm we needed for our worries and the cordial that gives us hope. Now at one level, this was simply the lyrical patriotism typical of the start of the war in many countries. It was also perhaps symptomatic of the birth of a war culture. Nonetheless, 
it remains the case that in France, as in Germany, Italy, and Great Britain, the publication of letters in the press and as books became a real vogue. <coughs> the books took the form both of anthologies and also of volumes of correspondence, often issued as posthumous hostage to a junior officer, more rarely a simple soldier, who died in combat. Abstracted from their context, there was rarely any military detail given, and never the other side of the exchange, they served as public models of courage and patriotism. Such volumes appeared throughout the war and for some while after it. The letters of German students who had died in combat, published by Philip Wittkop in 1916, and which was re-edited in 1918 and 1928, became a bestseller between the wars, but there were many, many other such volumes. However, if patriotism and a kind of public model of what it was to write the, the model letter uh, was the primary value of these uh, published collections, they were more complex than they appear at first sight. For the junior officers, who were usually their authors, had shared the frontline experiences of the soldiers, and often with higher casualty rates, even if they were more deeply invested in the military and social hierarchies. Given their number, the volumes of letters express the collective ideal of behavior in combat. But this makes it all the more striking, uh, and here we're absolutely entering the territory that, that Arabella discussed for us in the last paper before lunch. This makes it all the more striking that whether in the case of Wittkop or of similar French and British volumes, they all emphasized the horror of industrialized warfare and the carnage of failed offensives despite the language of a sacrifice readily accepted. Indeed, it was precisely the horror that provided the true measure of the sacrifice. Let me give two examples. The first is that of a young French painter, Eugène Le Mercier, whose letters to his mother were published after his death in 1915. They went through 23 editions during the war, so hundreds of thousands of copies were sold, as well as being translated into English. One finds, amongst many others, the following passage. This is from the early spring offensives of 1915. Quote, You cannot know, my dearest mother, just what men are capable of doing to each other. For five days now, my shoes have been thick with human brains. I have crushed chests and encountered entrails. The men of his company eat little alongside the corpses. The regiment has been heroic. We have no officers left. Finally, after five days of horror, which cost us 1,200 victims, we have been withdrawn from this place of abomination. Bestseller. Now, this was a literary correspondence par excellence, but the tension underlying it was that of the need for victory, the imperative of victory, and the impossibility of achieving it in the conditions of industrialized siege warfare in 1915. The second example from later in the war also, I think, makes this tension explicit. Paul Jones was an, ideal, an idealistic student and sportsman from an English public school with a place at Oxford, at Balliol in fact, who volunteered for the Army Supply Corps. He sought constantly to align his own experience with the larger meaning of the conflict as he understood it, as a struggle for national survival that would only end when democracy had abolished all war. Having longed for action, his first encounter with battle on the Somme led him to write that, quote, the glamour has decidedly worn off. Oh, if only we could get through the Bosch lines. At present, it's just a sordid affair of mud, shell holes, corpses, and filth, end of quote. 
Jones never despaired. He transferred to the tank corps and was killed at Passchendaele in July 1917. But the personal testimonies appended to the volume of his letters, which was published in uh, uh, 1918 um, under the title <coughs> War Letters of a Public Schoolboy, the personal testimonies attended, uh, appended to that volume reveal a private and a public sphere struggling to reconcile the narrative of battle with the meaning of the war. One editor of an unnamed London newspaper wrote, quote, it is infinitely tragic to hear day by day of this waste of life of brilliant young men who were the hope of the future. And yet we must not say that it is a waste. The price is appalling, but we must believe that it is being paid for, uh, that it is a treasure uh, being paid for, a treasure that the world cannot live without, end of quote. And it's precisely into that gap, which it seems to me, that tension, which is so um, powerfully revealed by these pu published and public volumes of letters during the war, um, that that language of sacrifice, acceptable, unacceptable, is expressed and attempts to, as it were, square the um, uh, circle. And I think that, Arabella, I think one of the answers perhaps to you know, that question of um, what's the difference between the Catholics and, and secular Republicans, and you were referring to the, the some, some kind of closing of the gap in the, in the two years after the First World War, is that there's a, both, there's a secular language of sacrifice and a religious language of sacrifice, they're not so far apart. And the commonalities of them, including the tension that you pointed to between all the tropes expressing sacrifice and redemption, but what that actually means in the face of this kind of battle, that is the, the common experience. And at the end of the day, it kind of brings them together. It's what allows Maurice Barrez to publish that, 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 that book on the, the diverse spiritual families of France, in which he takes precisely the published letters of different cultural and social categories, Jews, socialists, freethinkers, um, Catholics, to show that they're all Frenchmen, in fact, by their different ways of construing this sacrifice. In these published volumes then, replete with their editorial introductions and additional testimonies, traditional heroism meets a form of combat that is its nemesis. And the language of sacrifice resolves that contradiction, squaring the circle of hope and experience, and as such becomes the central motif. In this way, despite being selective and censored, the published soldiers' letters crossed a frontier that was anything but hermetically sealed between the private and the public. Now I come to my third and my last point, which is that of the wartime correspondence seen by the state as a source for measuring the morale of both the army and the civilian population. Here it was less a question of the individual letter, except in the case of overt dissidents and subversives who pers whose personal mail would then be followed by the authorities. So sometimes you can follow an entire correspondence from somebody that the state is individually watching. But it's more a quantitative reading of the correspondence. Indeed, by the last part of the war, the French authorities even attempted a statistical content analysis of soldiers' letters on a sampling basis. <coughs> For in an era that already dreamed of scientifically studying public opinion, while not yet having the means to do so, of course the first public opinion polls are only introduced in the later 1930s, the vast mass of wartime correspondence seemed to offer an ideal opportunity, if sampled, open, read, and reported on, to measure the mood of the population as the war unfolded. And that's exactly what the authorities did. Now, time precludes me from going into detail on the sheer scale of this undertaking, but I really do want to emphasize that it was truly gigantic, and I think it urgently needs 
comparative study. It's another fine subject for a comparative project. In many cases, Germany, the United Kingdom, the archives of what the French called the postal control, the postal monitoring, uh, have all but gone. But the near total preservation of those for France indicates in other states the ambition and the scale of the state's desire to monitor opinion. For each of the great powers subjected the correspondence between front and rear to a kind of bureaucratic reading designed to reveal its general ideas and feelings. And often in support of those reports, they copied out extensive extracts from individual letters in illustration. Russia, where the state was especially nervous about a new war, given the link between the Russo-Japanese War and the 1905 revolution, seems to have been the first to monitor and control mail in this sense. It's slightly counterintuitive, but I think it's, it's, it's owing to that particular political context. But other countries quickly followed suit. In France, from early 1916, the post of each military unit was periodically read and reports were drawn up from battalion level to whole armies that synthesized the findings while providing, as I say, numerous examples from individual letters. Ambition did not stop there. Military and civilian mail from France to all foreign destinations was read in <coughs> ports and frontier towns, reports similarly being drawn up. Even more extraordinary, totally under, unstudied, was the effort by the Western powers, France, Britain, Italy, and the USA, to use their maritime dominance to open and report on international mail on the high seas. So if you were writing from Argentina to Switzerland, your mail would be opened, copied, reported on, closed up, and sent on its way. And any multilateral connection by post that you can think of during the war that was available to the British and the French navies was subject to that treatment. The French instructions of December 19 for the postal control overall uh, describe its purpose in the following terms, and I quote, to follow military, diplomatic, economic, and financial situations, as well as the morale of France and of all countries, enemy, allied, and neutral. In short, it was to take the pulse of the entire world in, which, in a war in which morale and intelligence were seen as vital factors for victory. Far from private, the letters resulting from mass separation had become weapons of war. Such use of their letters was known about and often criticized by ordinary people and ordinary soldiers. But at least in the French case, the official readers were not interested in the intimate matters, which as we've seen were the living heart of the correspondence. What interested them was discipline, morale, and attitudes to the war. If that led the soldiers to self-censor, they also knew that given the mass of the correspondence between front and rear, the authorities could only sample a fraction of that, I mean, well under 20% in 1917, 1918, in the French case. Indeed, for some soldiers, the fact that the mail might be opened enabled them, enabled them to send one-way messages to the high-ups, telling them just what they thought of them uh, by way of criticism and complaint. For the historian, reading wartime letters through the post of control is the opposite of analyzing an individual correspondence in its specific context, with its relationships and, and, and its context known. Nonetheless, it allows her or him to, for example, follow a regiment through three years of war in the French case, and in conjunction with other sources, the trench press, regimental diaries, to examine its morale which was the operative criterion for the postal controllers, in relation to different arms. You can check it for the infantry, the artillery, the sappers, the uh, aviation, different sectors of the front, 
in relation to operations, particular battles, or indeed external events, such as the impact of the Russian Revolution or American entry into the war on the soldiers. One example from Verdun in 1916 must suffice to give an indication of what I'm talking about. The French 71st Infantry Division left Verdun in mid-July after 10 days in which it had suffered severe artillery bombardment, including gas, and German infantry attacks. A postal controller, who, as it turned out, as I found out, was the well-known uh, historian of the French Revolution, Louis Madelin, noted, such were the uses to which historians were put during the First World War, Madelin noted such low morale on the part of the soldiers, um, we might call it trauma, that they could barely write, quote, and he's, here he's quoting the soldiers in his report, I have no strength. If we had to leave now, I couldn't. I'd fall by the wayside. I think the gas did us a lot of damage, writes one. Others were still sick and dizzy from the shelling. Quote, you'd need a brain made of brass not to go mad. Madeleine concluded, quote, this is his summary, Verdun has literally become a place of horror. The men have a kind of phobia about it. Hell, furnace, Calvary, Calvary, Arabella, they call it, above all, the place of death, end of quote. Now, so concerned was Madelin that he conducted a second control of the same unit a week later. The mood was still grim, but the men had reconnected with their families and, quote, could see the ordeal of Verdun with a less tragic eye. This is Madelin's report. One man writes with a certain pride, it's true that we lost ground, but we took it back. We even lost our colonel who'd been taken prisoner, but we freed him. And another sums up his idea of battle, which is probably shared by many of his comrades, says Madelin. No one could say we were happy to go to Verdun because there was nothing agreeable about that furnace. But we'd heard, we'd heard so much about it. And now we have a certain satisfaction at having got out of it. More proudly, another says, so we took part in the celebrated battle, end of quote. This, it seems to me, was the primal ordering of experience by language, by men who felt themselves victims of the war as much as agents of their own or their nation's destiny. It was narrative as survival. The intimate letter was its medium, and the correspondence was thus part of the experience. But the postal control shows how this operated as a collective phenomenon. Well, let me conclude. Although they were certainly not the only form of popular wartime writing, there were diaries and memoirs, which, which sometimes overlapped with the letters, letters were nonetheless predominant in terms both of their volume and their role. For in a war that mobilized whole societies and sundered the small groups on which those societies were based, couples, families, neighborhoods, People reacted by writing to each other, weaving a web of epistolary solidarity between front and rear, of course, always within the capacities of each society and their literacy levels. People lived the war and they wrote the war. This writing, which by its nature was intimate, drew the attention of the public sphere as it did that of the state. It produced multiple contemporary readings at the time, which we as historians now use as so many different sources. As a result, the letters, which were intrinsically intimate, end up being both individual and collective, private and public.